Let's open our Bibles to the ninth chapter of Acts. And uh, as you're turning, let me thank you uh, for the privilege of serving you and all Southern Baptists, uh, especially through Guidestone. Lee Black is on our board over there, so we've got a close contact and connection with, with uh, Hoffmantown. And Steve Dighton is one of my what we call preacher boys who surrendered to the ministry when I was pastor back in Ada, Oklahoma, uh, way back there in the 70s. So uh, it's so good to be here today. You know, we're on a mission at Guidestone to bring dignity, as you saw in this video, to some forgotten people. And that is pastors and their widows in their declining years uh, living down there at the poverty level. They pastor out in the crossroads somewhere in seemingly unforgotten uh, or forgotten places. And uh, most of them lived in a church-owned parsonage. And when they retired, they had to move out of it with nowhere to go. And so we were able to come alongside of them. In fact, uh, we've raised so much money in the last few years that uh, 10, 12 years ago, we were able to give them $50 a month. Now the neediest get $600 a month. And as one little widow, 87 years old of a pastor, wrote me not long ago, she said, I get to eat at night now, and it's not just a piece of toast. And so every gift to Mission Dignity, every dime of it goes to one of these people. It's one of the few ministries I know that years ago, we raised the money to endow all the expenses to that ministry. So Carla, who's with us out at the table today, who works in Mission Dignity, her salary, everybody that works in Mission Dignity's salary, John Amber, our leader of Mission Dignity, all of the expenses of that ministry, all the printed materials you see here, even the stamp we send the check every month to these 1,800 wonderful people, all of that comes out of an endowment so that everybody that gives to Mission Dignity knows that every penny they give goes to one of those people in need. And then the, all, all the royalties from all of my books also support Mission Dignity. And uh, Carla has some of them out there today. They're leather-like gift edition books. They're great to give as gifts also. Uh, the Joshua Code, 52 scripture verses every believer should know. You know, I believe there are 52 verses in the Bible that every believer ought to know. Uh, they're here in the Joshua Code. And then the Jesus Code is 52 scripture questions every believer should answer. You know, I believe there are 52 verses in the Bible, questions in the Bible. Jesus asked 150 questions that are recorded in the Gospels. I believe there are 52 questions in the Bible that you need to answer before you go to heaven. And it's in the Jesus Code. All those books are out there, and all the royalties to them go to Mission Dignity. We're thankful for the way God has blessed them a million and a half or so in the last three years. And God is expanding our Mission Dignity ministry through these books. So hope you'll get some and give them as gifts. They're devotionals, and uh, I trust it will be a blessing to you. You know, uh, in Acts chapter 9, we immediately remember that it's the great chapter in Scripture when, when uh, Saul of Tarsus, that first century terrorist who was terrorizing the church, uh, came to know Christ in an experience on the Damascus Road. But there's a verse on down in the chapter that I believe is a verse that can be def a defining moment in your life today. You know, there are times in my life I look back over my decades of Christian living, and I can remember a service or a message that was a defining moment in my life when I heard some biblical truth and applied it to my life and was never the same again. And, you know, I think that's the possibility today. That from this one verse we're going to see in a moment, you can find a message for you. 
a defining moment in your life that you'll walk out these doors today never forgetting what God said to you in this moment. And that's my prayer as we come to Acts chapter 9, verse 31. It says, And then the churches throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified, were being built up. Now, we could just stop right there. Wouldn't that be something today if we could say that about our churches? That all the churches had peace? I preach in a different church almost every Sunday. I can tell you that a lot of them don't have peace. But all the churches had peace and were being built up in the Word of God. They were being edified. All the churches had peace and were being edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. You know, some time ago when I was reading this passage, it just jumped out at me and one word in this verse captured me. You know what it was? It was that word multiplied. Think about it. This early church was not just engaging its culture, it was transforming its culture and people were being multiplied. Thousands of people were being swept into the kingdom of God. In Acts 2, 3,000. A couple of chapters later, 5,000. In Acts 5, it says that they filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of Christ. Can you imagine filling Albuquerque with the message of the gospel of Christ? In Acts 17, it says they turned their world upside down. They were being multiplied. Thousands of people swept into the kingdom of God. You know, in our churches today, we rejoice when we have a few additions on Sunday morning. But this church was being multiplied. Did they have something that in all of our sophistication, somewhere along the line, we have failed? They, look, they did so much with so little. Think about it. They didn't have all the modern methods of communication that we have today. They didn't have any books, devotional books, or Bible study books, or helps, uh, Bible study, video series, all those things we have today. The printing press wouldn't even be uh, uh, invented till centuries after Acts chapter 9. They didn't have any gospel tracts. They didn't have any track the hand of somebody. They didn't have any means of communicating. Paul never preached with one of these goofy things around his ear, a microphone. He didn't have that. Uh, he, he didn't have uh, radio, television, air travel, any ways, internet, ways to communicate the gospel of Christ. Or think of all the ways we have today to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. They didn't have what you hold in your hand in Acts 9, the New Testament. And yet they were being multiplied, and we're not. Somewhere along the line in all of our sophistication, all of our Bible study material, all of our video series, all of the sophistication we have to translate the gospel, have we missed something that was apparent in this early church that caused them to fill cities with the gospel of Christ, that saw them turn their world upside down, I think we have. And I think the secret is right in the middle of this verse. Look at it again. Acts 9.31. Then the churches throughout all Judea and Samaria and Galilee had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and the... and walking in the fear of the Lord. Who's doing that today? When's the last time you had a conscious thought about walking in the fear of God, living in the fear of God? 
When's the last time you heard a message on the fear of God? Or when's the last time you, you gave any thought? Who, who in this room today could come here to this pulpit and define what the Bible means when it says we're to walk in the fear of God? Or live in this environment of the fear of God? You see, we live today in a no-fear culture all around us. We've raised a couple of generations in our Western world, particularly in America, without any moral absolutes. And so relativism is rampant, and there's no fear. When you take the Ten Commandments out of education, when you take it out of the public square, uh, there's no moral fabric and fiber. And so we've raised a couple of generations that live in a no-fear culture. That's why they go out and do the crazy things they do. and They've got no fear. And instead of the church engaging the culture, very subtly what's happened is that the culture comes into the church. And all of a sudden, the church wakes up and realizes we too are living in a no-fear culture. When a subject that was so prevalent on every page of the book of Acts is seldom, if ever, mentioned in our church, the fear of the Lord. So I've got three questions for us today. First of all, a why question. Why are we living in a culture, a no-fear culture in the church? Secondly, a what culture? What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? Does it mean I've got to live my life in constant fear, walking on eggshells, that if I say something wrong or do something wrong, something bad's going to happen to me? What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? And secondly, and thirdly, a how question. How can we put a handle on biblical truth today and apply it to our lives and walk out of these doors in such a fashion that it might be said of us that we were walking in the fear of God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and we too were seeing the church multiplied, that we were turning our own world upside down? First of all, a why question. Why are we living in a no-fear culture? Could it be that in many ways, even though we talk about it a lot and sing about it a lot, Could it be that in many ways we've lost the the concept of the holiness of God? That he is holy. The word means he's separate. He's set apart. He's a holy God. And you know what we've done in many ways in our quest, in our genuine, honest quest to reach this culture that's lost to the church? We've got two generations out there that are lost to the church of Jesus Christ. And in our quest to try to reach them, what we do when we're not, if we're not careful is we offer them a gospel that takes God off the throne of his holiness, Christ, and brings him down on our human level where he becomes our good buddy or somebody we've got so little reverence for we could run up and give a high five to in a youth rally somewhere or something. You remember Isaiah? He got a glimpse of the holiness of God one day, didn't he? He said, I, was, he said, I saw him. Isaiah did, chapter 6. He said he was high and he was lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple and that angelic choir and that antiphonal chorus began to sing back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. You think Isaiah's first inclination when he saw that was to run up to that throne and give him a high five? No. What did he do? He said, woe is me, I'm undone. For I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm hanging around a bunch of people like that. When we get a glimpse of God in his holiness, we see ourselves like we really are. What about John? Exiled on Patmos, over 90 years of age. And in the Revelation, the Apocalypse, the last book of your New Testament, he gets the unveiling. He sees the 
the Lord Jesus Christ in the glory and in the beauty of his holiness. You think his first inclination was to say, hey, good buddy, you shining bright today. No. You know what it says? He said, I fell down at his feet like I was a dead man. If I had time today, I'd like to walk us through every man and woman that was used of God in the Bible. And you know what we'd find? We would find a common thread woven through every one of their lives, every single one of them, that in one way or another it was said that they were walking in the fear of God. All those Old Testament saints, it was the fear of God that was the characteristic of their life. What about Noah? Hebrews 11.3 says, Noah by fear built the ark. What about those Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1 when the Pharaoh declared that all those male Hebrew babies be put to death? It was those Hebrew midwives, Exodus 1 says, that feared God more than they feared Pharaoh and saved them. Moses led the children of Israel for 40 years through the wilderness wanderings. They come to the portals of the promised land. He's going to go up on Nebo and die. He's not going in with them. And so he gathers the people together and he preaches a series of sermons to them. Like a revival meeting. It's, it's what your book of Deuteronomy is in the Old Testament. It's just Moses' messages to his people before he dies and before they go in. And Deuteronomy 10, he says to them in verse 13, he says, I, I'm going to die. He said, you're going to go into that land. But before you go into that land, what does the Lord require of you? Now think about that. After 40 years waiting to get in there, now they're about to go in. And Moses says, what does the Lord require of you as you go? And here's what he said, but to fear him as you go, to fear him as you cross Jordan. Joshua took the children of Israel through the Jordan River dry shod, began the conquest of the promised land, then way down to the end of his life in Joshua 24, verse 14. He gathers the people together for his final words. You know what they were? Here's what he said. Now then, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. All these Old Testament saints, Isaiah, Chapter 50, verse 10, he asked a probing question. Is there any among you who fears the Lord anymore? What about that Proverbs 31 woman? You know, Mother's Day, I was a pastor for a quarter of a century. You know what, we, we parade her out every Mother's Day, we preachers. <clears throat> She's so perfect. She does everything right. All those women are guilty by the time they get to lunch on Mother's Day. But if you read far enough into chapter 31, you'll find out the secret of that woman's life. Verse 30. You know what it says? A woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. All these Old Testament saints, if I had time, I could keep going with them. All of them were walking in the fear of God. We turn our Bibles into the Gospels. <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the stories of Jesus Christ clothing himself in human flesh, walking among us, the good news, the Gospels. In Luke 1, we're introduced to a young teenage virgin girl. With the Christ, think about that, the Christ alive and growing in her womb. And she sings that song of praise we call the Magnificat, recorded in Luke 1. My soul shall glorify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in Christ, my Savior. And she goes on in that song in verse 50 to sing, His mercy is on those who fear Him. Same chapter, Zechariah's lost his spirit speech, you remember? And when he got it back, the Bible says in verse 60, fear, 65, fear fell upon all of them. 
In Luke 5, Jesus heals a paralytic. And verse 26 says, they were all amazed and were filled with fear. In Luke 7, he goes through a village called Nain. And he comes upon a funeral procession. And there's a woman in black, a widow, following that casket. But it's not the, it's not the, husband of her, uh, the funeral of her husband. He's already dead. It's, a, it's her little boy in that casket. And Jesus brings life to that little boy. And, and Luke 7, 16 says, Fear fell upon all of them in the village of Nain, and the name of Jesus Christ was magnified. It's all through the Gospels. We turn our Bibles into the book of Acts, the dynamic story of the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the lives of that early church. It's on every page of Acts. Acts 2, Peter preaches that great Pentecostal sermon. And what does it say down in verse 42 and 43? Fear fell upon all of them. And many signs and wonders were done by the apostles. In Acts 5, there's a couple causing dissension in the church, lying to the church. But worse, lying to the Holy Ghost. And God struck them dead, Ananias and Sapphira. And verse 11 says, great fear came upon all the church. In Acts 10, Jesus, uh, Peter takes the gospel to Cornelius, the first Gentile convert that opened the door for all of us to enter. And what does he say when he gets up to Caesarea? He looks at Cornelius and he says, whoever fears God and works righteousness will be accepted by him. In Acts 19, Paul takes the gospel to Ephesus, that great metropolitan, cosmopolitan center of a quarter of a million people, preaches the gospel, and verse 17 says, they were all amazed and filled with fear. It's all through the Acts. We turn our Bibles from Acts into the epistles, these instructions of, uh, of Paul and others to, to those of us in this dispensation of grace in which we're living now, it's all through the epistles. In Romans 3, Paul laments a people in verse 17, he says, who have no fear of God before their eyes. In Romans eleven twenty, 20, he says, stand by faith, don't be haughty, but fear the Lord. To the Corinthians, he says in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, let's perfect holiness in our lives. They say, how? And he says, by walking in the fear of the Lord. To the Ephesians, in that great fifth chapter about the husband-wife relationship, the parent-child, the employer-employee, and about these relationships, what does he say in verse 21? Submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. Most of us quit there because the rest of that verse says, in the fear of the Lord. Do you know that we're supposed to be living our lives in this environment of the fear of God? And some of us don't even know what it is. That's the way we're to relate in our homes, at the office, everywhere. Submit yourselves, therefore. I could go on and on through these epistles, but time doesn't permit us to. Finally, we turn our Bibles to the Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And in Revelation 19, we see that beautiful scene of all the redeemed, of all the ages, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people, worshiping the Lamb of God, praising. And all of a sudden, in verse 5, it comes to a halt. And a loud voice, it says, comes from the throne. And what does it say? Fear our God. All, uh, uh, praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. That's who's going to be praising God in heaven, those who fear God. So I have a why question. Why? When the constant theme of the Bible when all those Old Testament saints, all through the Gospels, all through the book of Acts, all through these epistles instructing us in the dispensation of grace, and even when we finally get to heaven, why is the constant theme of all God's people this walking in the fear of God a forgotten concept today? 
And I'm speaking to people today who love Jesus and read their Bibles every day and yet haven't given thought, conscious thought to the fear of God in months or years. Could it be we need to recapture a glimpse of his holiness? But let me ask you a second question. What? What does it mean to walk in the fear of God? If I took you to the house where I grew up all my life, by over in East Fort Worth today, there are three houses still inhabited on my old block. <clears throat> All the rest of them are boarded up. Those three have iron bars on the windows. In that old neighborhood, in that transitional neighborhood, we used to, in the 50s when I was a kid, we'd sit outside in the, port, in the, on the, in the breezeway. Uh, I left my bicycle in the front yard every night, and it was there the next morning. We never locked the front door of that house, ever. They don't do that over on Crenshaw Street in East Fort Worth anymore. You know why? They live in constant fear of a drive-by shooting. Is that what it means to walk in the fear of God? That we have to live in constant fright of him or constant flight? That we have to be walking around on eggshells afraid that if we do something wrong or say something wrong that he has this big club of retribution and it, it, he's going to pound us over the head with it and something bad's going to happen to us so we've got to just fear him like that. If that's your concept of the fear of God, nothing could be more foreign to what the Bible teaches. The most common Old Testament word means to stand in awe before him with reverence and respect. The most common New Testament word so closely akin to that, it means to stand so much in awe of him with reverence and respect that it becomes the controlling motivation of your life. I was saved when I was 17 years old in Fort Worth. Fred Swank was my pastor. One of your pastors came from my home church, Jim Bryant, who uh, came here 50 years ago as pastor. Sagamore Hill Baptist Church in Fort Worth. And uh, I was saved back there in 1965. I was a teenager. That was during the Jesus movement. Teenagers were being swept under the kingdom of God. Jack Graham, who's pastor at Prestonwood in Dallas, former president of Southern Baptist Convention, was there the day I was saved. We became best buddies as teenagers, committed our lives to Christ and the ministry as teenagers, and have been best friends for almost 60 years since then as we've journeyed together through the Christian life. And uh, there were hundreds of young people in our group at Sagamore Hill Baptist Church in those days. In fact, over 100 young people in that church in the decade of the 60s went out to gospel ministry all over the world. Uh, Jerry Rankin, who used to be the head of the IMB, was our youth minister at that church. And uh, I moved back to First Baptist. I moved back to Texas. We'd pastored in Florida for years. And I moved back to Texas in 1993 to First Baptist Dallas. Jack had already moved back to, to Prestonwood Baptist. We were back in Dallas. And we heard there was going to be a reunion over at Sagamore Hill of all those people that were in our youth group back there when we were teenagers, when we were saved and called to preach. And we hadn't seen many of those people in 25 years. You know how reunions are. You want to you go back and see everybody, see what those people used to date look like nowadays and stuff like that. You've all been to a reunion. <clears throat> well, we got in our car. Susie and, and De Jack, De Deb's Jack's wife weren't that excited. But the four of us drove over to Fort Worth with that reunion. We had a great time. We were driving back that night, and Jack and I were in the front seat, and we began to talk about how wonderful it was to go back and see everybody we ever ran around with as a teenager and everybody we used to date 
be able to look them in the eye and have no regrets. And we said, what did we have back there when our hearts were so hot for God? And you know what we remembered? We had a pastor who taught us as teenagers to walk in the fear of God. And you know what he taught me? He taught me that the walking in the fear of God is not the fear that God's going to put his hand on me of retribution. It's the fear that God might take his hand of blessing and anointing off of me. That's what it means to walk in the fear of God. That you live your life in such a way that you don't want God to take his hand off of you. His hand of blessing and protection and anointing. So that makes a difference. If you live every day like that, with that attitude, that you don't want God to take his hand off you, you know what? That'll make a difference in what you say about somebody else. That'll make a difference in where you go. That'll make a difference in what you watch. That'll make a difference in what comes out of your mouth. If you live your life in this environment of the fear of God, that not the fear that God's going to put his hand on you, but you, you, you want to live in the fear that God won't take his hand off of you. Now, I want to ask you a question. What will happen to you if you start living like that? If you get up in the morning and you say, look, I want to be conscious of this all day long. I want to walk in the fear of God like Acts 9.31. I don't want to do anything today, say anything today that might cause God to take his hand off of me. It will make a difference in everything. And you know what will happen? God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. I don't care who you are. Anytime I speak to a crowd this large, there are a lot of people in here with secret sins. Nobody knows about them, but you do. And you go out and you commit them and you come back and you say, oh God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm never going to do that again. And, and you mean it, but you go right back and you go right back to it. And that process just keeps getting repeated and repeated and repeated. And a lot of us in this room today are living in that. Well, if you'll start walking in the fear of God like I've talked, you don't want God to take his hand off of you. You know what it'll do? God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. You say, where do you get that? I get it all through the Bible. How about Proverbs 16, verse 6? Listen to this. By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. Did you hear that? By the fear of the Lord, one departs from evil. You start walking in the fear of God, God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome those sinful desires. What about Moses at Sinai in Exodus 20? Remember what he said? God has come to test you to see what is in your heart that his fear might be upon you. What? So that you might not sin. Exodus 20, 20. That his fear might be upon you. So that you might not sin. You start walking in the fear of God. God will give you a supernatural ability to overcome your sinful desires. I'll tell you something else he'll do. He'll give you supernatural wisdom to make right decisions in life. Some of you need that desperately because you've made some wrong decisions. And you need God to guide you. You need God to let you. You start walking in the fear of God. He'll give you wisdom. You'll, you'll, it'll surprise you. Where did I get that? How about all through the Proverbs? How many times in the Proverbs do we read this? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's all through the Proverbs. You don't even have any wisdom unless you're starting to walk in the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the very beginning of wisdom. And what about what the psalmist said in Psalm 50, uh, 25 verse 14? The secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him. And to them 
he'll reveal his covenants. You ever read the word of God and say, man, I'm just not getting much out about this. Well, no wonder you're not. You start walking in the fear of God. The Bible says, Psalm 25, 14, the secrets of the Lord are with those who fear him. And to them, he'll reveal his covenants. You'll be astounded at the revelation you'll get in reading God's word. Walking in the fear of God is not the fear that God is going to put his hand on you. It's a fear he might take his hand off of you. A why question, a what question, finally, and we'll be through, a how question. How can I put a handle on biblical truth that I've heard today and walk out of these doors walking in the fear of the Lord? Where do I begin? How do I begin? You begin like you begin everything else in the Christian life with the Word of God. Let me take you back to Moses, uh, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 10. He gathers the people together for a final word, and it's one of the most moving scenes, Deuteronomy 31 in chapter. And Moses takes the book of God, the tablets of stone God had given him at Sinai that were written with God's own finger. And he holds up the word of God before the people, and a hush comes over all of them. And Moses says that you may hear these words and learn and learn to fear the Lord. And that your children may hear these words and learn to fear the Lord. How it's a learned behavior. So I want to give you a challenge. In the normal traffic pattern of your daily reading of the Word of God, every time you come across this word, fear of God, fear of the Lord, circle it. It'll show up every day in your Bible reading. And it'll be a constant reminder to you of walking in the fear of God. So how do you do it? You know, I always believe it's, it's easier to show somebody how to do it than to tell somebody how to do it. So let me just give you an illustration. I grew up with a mom and dad who sacrificed so much for me. They didn't have to think they could have kids. They were, they were way up in their uh, 40s when I was born. They have been married 20, almost 20, 15 to 20 years, didn't think they could have kids. Uh, I, I know it wasn't a virgin birth, but it was a miracle just the same, I'll tell you, when I showed up. But they sacrificed so much for me. My dad never made $10,000 a year in his life. He, Retired way back in the 60s. Worked for the city of Fort Worth all of his life. First in the sewer division. And then later in the health department. Never made $10,000 a year in his life. But I'll tell you what, I never played in a ball game. He wasn't there. If it was baseball season, my glove was just as good as anybody's on the baseball team. If it was track season, back in those days we used to run on those old cinder tracks with those long metal spikes. My spikes were just as nice and shiny as new as anybody's on the team. I never played in the game. He wasn't in the stands. I never remember my mom ever buying a dress or blouse or skirt, pair of shorts or slacks. Twice a year, there'd come this big parcel from out Stamford, Texas, in West Texas, where my great aunt Lily lived. Clothes that she no longer wore, she sent to my mom. My mom wore her clothes. They sacrificed so much for me. All my life, I'd aspired to be a lawyer. When I was 10, 12 years old, I had a day off from school. I'd go get on the bus. I'd go downtown. I'd sit in the courtroom all day and listen to trials. When I got to be a sophomore and 
high school, I dawned on me that I, even though I was a pretty decent athlete, I was never going to be able to be good enough to play college athletics. And I knew if I went to college, I was going to have to pay for it because my mom and dad didn't have the funds to do it. So I started working. I quit playing ball when I was a sophomore. Started working after uh, I got two jobs after school and on the weekends. And I needed a car. I needed a car not to get to not not for social reasons, but to get from school to work to work. And so I got a car when I was a junior in high school. Now it, it was almost ten years old. Uh, it was a '57 Chevrolet. Man, I wish I still had that '57 Chevrolet. <laughs> Because if I still had that 57 Chevrolet, it'd be worth a lot more than that $250 we paid for it. We put $50 hard cold cash down on that at the Poly State Bank and financed the other $200. And when I got that car, my dad set down four rules. I couldn't leave the house. I didn't stop at his chair and answer four questions. Where are you going? What are you going to be doing? Who are you going with? And when are you going to be home? Boy, it used to tick me off. Especially when my friends were from high school were with me that had no curfew, and I have to stop at my daddy's chair and say where I'm going, who I'm going with, what I'm going to do, and when I'm going to be home. Well, one Friday night, we dropped our dates off, and a bunch of guys we we met at the Sutter's Barbecue was our high school hangout. It was an old barbecue place over on Mitchell Boulevard in East Fort Worth. Had a barbecue building back there. You could go in there. There were a few booths and counter with those swivel vinyl seats on it. But out front, there was this big awning that went all the way across the front. And you'd drive your car up under that awning. And they had things that kids don't know anything about today called car hops. And you'd roll your window down. Nobody had electric windows. You'd roll your window down. They'd put that aluminum tray out there. They'd come down. They'd come out there, take your order, bring your barbecue sandwich, Coke, whatever you wanted to do. So one Friday night, we are taking our dates home. Uh, me and my buddies, we all pulled down here at that, this end of that awning. We were out there just drinking the Coke and talking like high school kids do. All of a sudden, I saw my dad drive into Sutter's Barbecue parking lot. Now, that was a shock to me because I'd never seen him eat out publicly one time in my life. We didn't eat out. I said, not only that, he told me the other day, he said, I hear that's a sorry barbecue in town. I don't know why you hang out there. And not only that, I'd never seen him out past 930 unless we went into extra innings in a baseball game somewhere or not. And, and, and here he is driving down into Sutter's Barbecue. And I looked at my watch and I said, uh-oh, I know why he's here. I was supposed to be home 45 minutes ago. Well, fortunately, he didn't see me. And he pulled in down here to this side of the awning. And he pulled in. He, I could see his lights go off. I was watching him from over there. He got out of his car. About the time he walked, got to the front of his car, he saw me over there. Have you ever seen how these F-16 fighter jets lock into that target <laughs> right before they drop that bomb? Man, our eyes just locked. I'm down there. My old heart's beating. I said, what's he going to do? Is he going to come down here and embarrass me in front of my friends? Is he, what's he going to do? And I'll tell you what, he just stared at me. And then he went like this. And then he stared back at me. And he got in his car and drove off. I beat him home. And I'm going to tell you why. I feared my daddy. I didn't fear him physically. He was almost 60 at that time. I was 17. I could have taken him down physically had I had to. I didn't fear him physically. I'll tell you what I feared. And I feared it till I was holding his hand at 95 when he breathed his last breath. 
The thing I feared the most that night at Sutter's Barbecue was that after all my dad had sacrificed for me, after all he had done for me, the thing I feared the most about my daddy was that I would do anything that would dishonor or displease him. Now, friend, when we talk about walking in the fear of God, that's what we're talking about. After all the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you, he who knew no sin became sin for you that you might become the righteousness of God in him. He demonstrated his own love toward you, and while you were yet a sinner, he died for you. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. The thing you ought to fear the most as a believer is that you do anything that dishonors or displeases your Savior. Oh, that it might be said of us what was said of them, that we had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we too were multiplied. It's said that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. He wrote the book of Ecclesiastes to tell us about the folly of laughter and liquor and lust and luxury and all those things so many people are interested in. And he closed the book of Ecclesiastes in the last chapter, chapter 12, down in verse 10, by saying this. Now then, he said, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Well, that ought to make us perk our ears up. When the wisest man who ever lived says, now then, hear the conclusion of the whole matter, especially if he's inspired of the Holy Spirit to write it in the Holy Word of God. What did he say? Listen, he said, now then, hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. That's it. That's the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, he said, and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of of man. You start walking in the fear of God. It'll make an incredible difference in your life. You'll be at peace and be edified. And God will make you an incredible blessing. You say, preacher, I want the hand of God on me. Well, I want to tell you something as I close. It's the hand of God that brought you here this morning. Some of you here may never have put your faith and trust in Christ. It's the hand of God that brings you to this moment. Some of you here today say, listen, I know the Bible. I read the Bible. I study the Bible. And this is what I've been looking for. I need to capture this concept of walking every day in the fear of God. That's the hand of God that brought you to this place. It's the hand of God right now that leads you to this moment of decision with him as we bow our hearts before him. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. If you're here and never have put your faith and trust in Christ, it's the fear of God that, and the hand of God that leads you to say, Lord, forgive me of my sin and come into my life. Jesus died on a cross, was buried, raised again the third day. That's the gospel. And if you'd put your trust in that, you can have everlasting life. If that's the desire of your heart, just say, Dear Lord Jesus, go ahead in your heart, Dear Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus.
if that's the expression of your life, as you this service is over, go by that guest booth out there. They'll give you, they'll give you some material that will help you to begin to walk the Christian life. And as we leave this place today, may each and every one of us leave it walking in the fear of the Lord. We're going to have a word of prayer. I'm going to turn it back over to the ministers here. I look forward to visiting with you out at, the, out at our booth, at our Mission Dignity booth, if you have a moment to drop by after the service. Father, seal these words in our hearts today. We love you and praise you. And give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen.